you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis 50. I'm going to read a passage from Genesis 37 to get us started, but Genesis 50 is where we're going to land, and we're going to be looking at really 40 years of someone's life this morning. And I'm going to be reading from Genesis 37, and I want to mention before I read these verses as you're turning to Genesis 50, that we often start the services and we often start the time of, of preaching with, um, with the Word of God, and that is intentional. The reason why we do that is so that we can all kind of come to that place where we understand the one we're hearing from is not somebody's opinion, it is not a man-made piece of advice, it's the Word of God. And it's what he has communicated then to us through his revelation and through all the authors throughout history that has given us the word of God. And so oftentimes, Pastor C.T. or myself will read the word of God, and then oftentimes we'll close it and we'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, we, we know that you know it's from the Bible. The reason we say that, if you've maybe come from a church that's a little bit more traditional or different denominational persuasions, then maybe your church in the past has done something like that before. And oftentimes you'll hear people reply with, thanks be to God. And the reason why people give that reply is because we're saying we're honoring God's word. And as we hear God's word, we're saying, thank you, God, for what you've spoken to us, because this will help us in our lives and in our faith. So that's why we do that. Uh, every once in a while, you'll hear kind of a sputtering or a spattering of people kind of saying, thanks be to God. That's where that comes from. And uh, so we'll all read this text, and maybe we could just practice it this morning. And if that's not something you've done before, now you kind of understand maybe where that comes from, why we say this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. So we'll do that, then we'll pray together and dive in. Let me read from Genesis 37, starting in verse 23. It says, so when Joseph came to his brothers... They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why don't you take just 30 seconds and just pray and ask God to speak to you today from his word. So whatever you came in the doors with today, just take a moment and settle your heart so you can maybe orient it towards the Lord and then we'll dive in together. Father, we've already sung praises to you this morning about your son, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. He will return as the conquering king for his church. We've sung about the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came to take away the sins of the world. Father, we've sung about how many reasons there are to worship you and praise you. We've seen that even demonstrated through Jessica's life and how you've worked in her life. Father, we've talked about how you are a good and perfect heavenly Father, and that your plan is perfect even when it doesn't make sense to us. 
So as we sing these songs of faith, Father, even now as we open your word, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear so that we might be changed by your spirit. So Father, speak to us now in Jesus' name, amen. At some point, you've probably heard the children's prayer. If you know it, you can say it with me here. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And when bad things happen in life, this prayer might present a bit of a problem. We see innocent people dying from preventable diseases or children starving. And we wonder, if God is great and God is good, then why would he allow these types of things to happen at all? Many people assume that if God were truly good, he would prevent bad things from happening to his people or to people in general. We don't see him acting, or when we don't see him acting in a given situation, we are tempted to think he's not interested, and we're, we're tempted to question whether he is really indeed good and really indeed in control. Sovereign, it means in charge of all things. Throughout history, people have asked this question in the face of atrocities. You think about the Holocaust, slavery, just some more recent examples, genocide, starvation, unexplainable tragedy, things that happen for no rhyme or reason, or so it seems. Why do bad things, here's the classic question, happen to good people? Now, of course, we might say that the question is flawed, and it is. Because the Bible reminds us that no one is righteous, no one is good. We often think that maybe, why do bad things happen to good people? But we have to remind ourselves, no one, when measured against the standard of God's holiness, is indeed good. So the question, although it's flawed, it does get after something that people feel all the time. From our perspective, this is how we often phrase the question. And yet sometimes what prompts the question is not what's going on outside of our lives, but what's happening in our lives, in the relationships of our lives. We think, why did this happen to me? Why is this person I love going through this pain? Why did God let me get abused? Why didn't my marriage survive? Why am I still not married? Why can't we have children? Why are our children running away from God? And a thousand other questions that cause this trouble to come into our minds, this feeling of doubt. We're in a teaching series called No One Ever Told Me, and these are questions that could have come up after you put your faith in Jesus Christ that you might still be struggling with. Maybe you've received some truth in response to some of these questions from God's word, but maybe there's some that are still struggling with what is God's response to these issues? What is God's response to that question, even though flawed, that we feel, why do bad things happen to good people? And if you've ever asked why bad things happen, then you're in good company, because the Bible is full of stories of people who asked the very same question. Let me give you a few examples. Remember Abraham, when he learned God planned to destroy the city of Sodom. He said in Genesis chapter 18, Moses wrote down that Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he is questioning God's justice. Moses, the one who actually penned the words in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, it's called the Pentateuch. Moses, who wrote these books down, he went so far as to accuse God. 
And he said in Exodus chapter 5, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Jeremiah, in response to an assassination plot, said, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? When our view of God and what is good doesn't line up with reality, with the reality of our experience, we may start to wonder if he even exists. And if he exists, is he good? And if he's good, is he really in control? Well, it's an important question to deal with because it has the potential to undermine our faith. Let's remind ourselves of the story of Joseph this morning. And that's why we're in Genesis 50. And that's the tail end of his life's really journey, his life story. He was 57 years old when we'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 50. But if you go back to when he was 17 years old, from the text that I read in Genesis 37, he was spoiled, he was arrogant. He was condescending. His brothers couldn't stand his attitude. His brothers were mostly older. And while his brothers worked with the family's flocks, which was not a very glamorous job at all, Joseph, the favorite son, he hung back at home and just hung out with his dad. On occasion, his dad would then, Jacob, send him out to his brothers to tell them what to do, to check in on their work, and to see if they're doing what he's asked them to do. So he's a bossy kid who kind of is privileged, and he's been privileged in what he has, how he lives, how he's treated, all of these things. So when he is sent off to see how they're doing in Genesis 37, at this point, their anger and their resentment and their jealousy pushed them over the edge. And nine of his brothers wanted him murdered. Wipe them out. Get rid of them. One wanted him sold, Judah, one wanted him rescued, Reuben. He ends up being traded, as we read, to a caravan of Midianites, which results in him becoming a slave in Egypt. And over the next 40 years, remember, if you ever come across the number 40 in the scriptures, it typically refers to a period of testing, a period or a trial where God's people or an individual, where their faith is being tested. And then after that 40 days has run its course, oftentimes you'll see God show up in a unique way to demonstrate his presence amongst that individual's life or amongst his people. And so you might be thinking, okay, from 17 to 57, how's God going to show up here? Is God showing up for Joseph's sake or for the sake of his family or for the sake of others? He's kind of showing up, ultimately, we could say, really for the sake of his people, but specifically maybe for the brothers, the brothers who had had 40 years of guilt, 40 years of understanding what they had done, knowing the sin of their actions, and now God's going to show up and respond to them through his servant, Joseph. Now, before we go any further, this is a narrative, so let's just understand what that means. We need to know how this story of Joseph, why is Joseph's life story in the Bible at all? We, we need to know that big picture view. The story is there because it talks about God's plans. The, the Bible is ultimately about God's plans for the world, which is the whole point of the scriptures. But this passage is ultimately about how God is caring for Jacob's family and preserving them through a, uh, preserving them through a famine so that his plan of building a spiritual family will one day lead to, that will one day lead to the Messiah, it's still intact. 
So the reason why Joseph is in the Bible is because God gave promises to Abraham, and then through Abraham's descendants, God wanted to sustain his people, so ultimately a Messiah would be sent that would bring a family back to God through faith. That's the big picture. It's what's called the meta-narrative of Scripture. This is where that fits in that big context of Scripture. And yet within the narrative... Within the story, we're just looking at one of the pieces of the narrative, the struggle of Joseph, and allowing that one piece to show us, really, we see through Joseph's life that God does all things for his glory and our good. He does all things for his glory and our good. So that's where the story is within the whole scope of Scripture, and this is the nuance we want to look at within the story, that God does all things for his glory and our good. Maybe you've struggled with that question. Let me just bring it home here before we read a little further. Maybe you know as you came in this morning, there are times when you really feel tempted to think, is this really good? How can God work this struggle, this evil, this issue, this problem out for his good and my good and his glory? How is that even possible? Well, we'll see that in Joseph's life. Now, at this point along the journey, Jacob, his dad, has died, and his brothers began to worry. Even though Joseph had forgiven them years ago, they couldn't forget how they had wronged him. And now that their dad was dead, they were wondering whether Joseph would pay them back for all the things that they had done wrong to him. And that's what we find in Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The first principle we can see from this narrative is we must recognize that all evil and suffering exists because of sin. It exists because of sin. We're not going to answer this question from the entirety of Scripture, but we're at least going to move somewhere this morning through this story. And it starts with understanding that it all began with sin. As Joseph's brothers came to him, they're acknowledging that what they had did, what they had done was evil and was the cause of years of suffering for Joseph. By this time, I'm sure he would have told them all the things that happened to him once he was sold as a slave. And it wasn't really a great smooth ride. It was a rocky road, a road full of difficulty. Now, what they didn't know was all the things that maybe he had had, uh, all the conversations he had had privately with his dad once they brought his dad Jacob back to him. So they're now doubting whether maybe uh, Joseph was really going to forgive them or whether it was all a show for Jacob. And now that Jacob's dead, is he going to, respond and maybe bring some vengeance upon them for what they did so many years ago, even though he said he had already forgiven them and they'd already moved on. The Bible is clear, and the brothers knew it, 
that sin is a consequence of our choices. That's where it starts. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, all humanity, because all sinned. When Adam and Eve and you and I sin, we're basically saying to God, we don't trust you. We believe that there's some good that you're withholding from us. There's something that you're keeping back from us, and so our way is better than your way. We're going to pursue our way instead of your perfect will. And when we do that, God allows it, and when we run off on our own direction, we bring all this brokenness into the world. And so when Adam and Eve fell, and when that sin happened, it changed the fundamental nature of the world and how we relate to God. Now, whether the bad thing that happens to us is due to a natural evil, something beyond our control, a disease, a a hurricane, a tornado, whatever it might be, or a moral evil when people do something against us. The cause can always be traced back to the sin of mankind, which has resulted in a broken world. Sometimes it's easy to trace evil back to sin. In many situations, we don't need to ask God, why did you allow this to happen to me? We don't even need to go there. If For example, just a light illustration, I'm sure hasn't happened to anybody here, but I'll use it anyways. So imagine if you're skipping out on work, and you lie about skipping out on work, and your boss catches you lying about skipping out on work, and you get fired. You can't say, God, why did you do this to me? It's pretty obvious. The reason you got fired and you lost a paycheck is because of your own sin. It's just a consequence of what you have done. It happened because of sin. Regardless of how well we live and how godly our decisions are, sometimes, though, bad things are still going to happen to us because we live in a broken world. There's no surprise here. We all know this from our own personal experiences. But over and over throughout Scripture, we see this myth get exploded. And the myth that gets exploded is that if you are good enough, if God loves you enough, then you can avoid suffering or evil. And it's just a myth. Job was blameless and lost everything that mattered. John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Messiah as a servant of God, as a prophet of God. And what was the result of his obedience? He was beheaded. Paul, all the things that he did for the church, yet he was repeatedly beaten and stoned and left for dead and ultimately martyred. Here's the thing. When we expect pleasure without pain in this life, we're forgetting that this world is not heaven. It's not heaven. This is what is called, it's a fancy expression, but let me explain it to you. This is what is called an over-realized eschatology. Ology, it means the study of. Eschaton means last things. So it's the study of last things, the future of the church, the future of us. And what it means is an overrealized eschatology means we want all the promises of heaven, we want all of the reality of heaven, but we want it right now. So like the, the peace that is in heaven, the love that is in heaven, the, the, the prospering that is in heaven, the purity that's in heaven, the relationships that are in heaven, all the things that are happening around the throne of God in complete unison with his will, we want that reality now. And it's not bad to want it, but to think it's actually going to be here is just not the way the world works, because the world's broken. 
And so when we function with an over-realized eschatology, wanting all the benefits of heaven right now, ultimately that robs us of our motivation to even live. Because if we love this life so much and this world so much, then what are we really looking forward to? The whole point of heaven, the hope of heaven, is that we're going to a place that's infinitely better than the place we are. And so we can't expect the reality of heaven to be our reality right now. And yet so often, we'll find brothers and sisters and people saying, well, I thought that God really loved me. Why did this happen? How could this happen? I guess he must not. I guess this was all just some kind of deception. And maybe you've been tempted to think such things. When we're faced with personal injustice and bad things happen to us now, we have an opportunity to make the same choice as Joseph, realizing that all the evil really came not from God but through sin. And we can choose, like Joseph, to forgive. That's our second principle. Look at verse 17. It says, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why does Joseph weep? If somebody asks you forgiveness, why is he weeping in response to that? For 17 years, Joseph's brothers had lived under a cloud of fear because they didn't perhaps... That's maybe why they're asking the question. We don't know for sure. But perhaps they didn't really trust that his forgiveness was genuine, was sincere. And maybe they thought as long as their father was alive, they trusted in human ties to protect them. But when Jacob died, their only defense was now gone. And Joseph had come to a place where he could have full vengeance on his brothers if he so choose. And notice he didn't wait for them to deserve it or earn it or be repentant. He just forgave them as he had done 17 years ago when they first came to him in the midst of the famine and said, we need food. And he eventually discloses that he's their brother that they had sold so many years ago. He, he, he right then, in that moment, forgave them. He, he, he had conversations with them. He forgave them to the point of bringing all of them down to Egypt, giving them some of the best land in Egypt, and providing for all of them. And now, 17 years after he first was reunited with his family, he's forgiving them all over again because they didn't really believe it. And so he's forced and confronted with the same reality. Maybe that's why he wept. Maybe he wept because he, he, he had already been expressing forgiveness to them, but they just didn't believe it. And so he was sorrowful over the fact that they had not understood the genuine love that he had for them. And so he weeps. But this shows us an important truth. It shows us that God's truth is strong enough to face a situation where an apology never comes and yet forgiveness is still offered. This is the gospel, really. When you think about the life of Jesus Christ, we didn't first ask for it. We didn't ask Jesus to come. We didn't first come begging and crawling to God saying, would you please send a redeemer? He's already come. And the people in the Old Testament, they looked forward to his coming. But then when he did come, they didn't recognize him. And all of humanity, both Gentiles and Jews, put him on a cross. We did not ask God first for forgiveness, but he grants it and gives it. And then our job then is to receive it. So the gospel tells us we didn't first ask for it. Jesus gave it. We receive it. Forgiveness is hard. 
And sometimes, as we see here with Joseph, it's ongoing, maybe decades long. It's a process. And maybe that's something you didn't realize when you started following Jesus. Maybe you didn't realize that when Jesus said, I forgive you, and you're to forgive others, you're to forgive them 70 times 7, you're, you're to forgive them regardless of what has been done, even your enemies, even the ones who have done things against you, you are to forgive. When he commands us, maybe you think to yourself, well, he's God, and I'm not, so he understands if I hold on to a little bit of, a little bit of this bitterness or resentment or anger, because I'm not Jesus, so... I can't be held to that kind of standard, but we are when he says, follow me and do like I did and forgive like I did. How is that possible? Only with his help. And Joseph, you can imagine decades of pain, of suffering, probably had to forgive his family over and over and over again. We've all had people do things to us that were hurtful or unfair. The question for you this morning is, are you allowing those wounds to define who you are and where you're headed? What happened in your past has the ability to define your future. But that doesn't mean it has the right to define your future. Unforgiveness really is like a cancer. It is toxic and it will eat you from the inside out. That's what it does. From God's perspective, when we hold on to our anger and our bitterness, when we feel like we have every right to hold on to that grudge until we're paid back in full, from God's perspective, that is the most self-destructive thing we can do. It's the worst thing that we can do. Just because your anger and hurt is justified doesn't mean that it's not poisonous. So you have an important choice to make. We all do. We can decide whether we want to be free and take that first step and stop letting our past control our future. We have to decide whether or not we will really forgive. And I kind of get it. I mean, I remember thinking through my life, I was hurt deeply by a family member. And it followed me for years. It continues to bring about struggle. It just constantly has brought about issue in my life, a deep wound from a family member. And I remember when I was in my mid-20s, Katie and I had been married just a couple years, it was just defining me, it was, it was wrapping me up and I couldn't move beyond it and I felt just in bondage to it. And I remember just one day finally releasing it to God and forgiving as best I knew how and I wept. I just wept with Katie for, I don't know, an hour or two. And she just held me and and I tried to give it to the Lord, just, I need, to, I need to pursue forgiveness here. Because when you hold on to an unforgiving spirit, when you hold on to the hurt and the pain that others have caused you, it's a tragic scene that plays out. And the tragedy is because so many people spend their lives waiting for a debt to be paid that cannot be paid it cannot be paid. When you get down to it, the people who hurt you the most cannot possibly repay you in a way that actually undoes the damage. E even if I was to receive forgiveness, even if a family member were to come to me and unprompted say, I'm so sorry, that would still not remove my scars. They're still there. 
In the same way, I was just reminded by two of our brothers, Jesus Christ, the wounds that he received because of our sin, although it's been forgiven and he's moved past it, certainly, and he overcame it and there is victory in him, he still bears those scars. So we still carry the scars. And the tragedy is you cannot pay these things back. How can a dad who abandoned his kids repay them? You can't pay back a missing relationship. How do you restore time? How do you repair a destroyed reputation? How does someone give you back your innocence? They can't. It's gone. That's why unforgiveness is so tragic, because we spend our lives waiting for debts to be paid that cannot be paid. When we choose to hold on to grudges, we relinquish control of our future. We trade the possibilities of today for the pain of the past. And we become in bondage to that issue, to that hurt. Forgiveness is a choice. When we choose forgiveness, we choose to follow the ways of Christ. And it brings spiritual freedom. That's the result of forgiveness when offered to others. Once you have made that choice, as Joseph did here, then finally you can allow God to shape your perspective. His perspective had to be changed dramatically over his years from 17 to 57. And here we finally see the fruit of all that change and all the work that God had done in his life. Look at verses 20 and 21. I think two of the best verses in the scripture. When it says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You can only understand that verse through eyes of faith. You just can't get there any other way. How can evil that is done against me be used of God to bring about good? Only through faith can we see this. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's focus was on God and what God wanted him to do instead of what had been done to him. Notice the change. We tend to focus more on what we want God to do about our circumstances than what God wants to do in us as we deal with our circumstances. With God's power... We can stop looking at our situation in light of what has been done to us and look at it in light of what has been done for us through Jesus. Joseph's life is a classic lesson on how to overcome bitterness. You think about this guy, 17 years old. Yeah, he was kind of a punk kid. Okay, we'll grant him that. But then when he's taken, he certainly didn't deserve what came his way. Falsely accused several years later of rape of Potiphar's wife, and so he's thrown in prison. He did nothing. He ran from the temptation, actually, and he's thrown in prison. And then while he's in prison, he's told that he'll be freed, and the man who told him that he'd be freed literally just forgot about him. And he was left there to rot for years. What kind of bitterness do you think he was tempted to start thinking? What kind of hurt and pain do you think he had to process sitting in a cell thinking about his brothers who brought all this about when they threw him in a well? What, what kind of rage might have been birthed within his heart? 
And yet here we find in Genesis 50, for 17 years, and even after his dad's death, he's still offering forgiveness, and he's still viewing it through this lens, saying, you know what, from God's perspective, I see that what you meant for evil, God has still used it for good. He's still used it to bring about his plans, to bring about his purposes. It goes back to the big picture I told you earlier. Even though it was evil that was done to him, God took care of his family, Jacob's family, and continued continued this story of redemption because of what Joseph went through. So it was shaping Joseph. God uses the experiences of our lives, especially the difficult ones, to do something special in us. He wants us to use our painful experiences to shape us. That's what Paul reminds us of in what I consider the greatest chapter in the scriptures, Romans chapter 8, when he says, and we know that for those who love God, God Uh, I'm sorry, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So let me just read through this once again. And we know that for those who love God, part of what happens in our lives work together, a piece of it. All things work together for good. All things, everything works together for good. All of it working together to conform us into the image of the Son. All things working together so that we'll become more like our example, this firstborn amongst many brothers, more like Jesus Christ. All things working together. Really? Do you believe that? All things work together? For good? Or does some doubt creep in? Just for the sake of all of us here, can you just say that out loud? Say all things with me. Say all things. All things. All things work together. That is faith, friends. That is faith. Believing that God will take everything, all the junk that's surrounding you and even in you, and somehow redeem it for your good and his glory. Reminded of Johnny Erickson Tata, she dove into a pool with no water in 1967. She became a quadriplegic as a result of the accident. And this is what she wrote one time. She said, God does not give advice. He does not give reasons or answers. He gives one better. He gives himself. God wrote a book on suffering and called it Jesus. This is why God is good. What makes God good isn't that he makes only good things happen or answers all our questions or gives us whatever we want. He is good because he gave himself. He is good because this is the story of Christ. He gave himself. He came to his own and his own rejected him. His own murdered him. And for our good and for his glory, he went to a cross. He is good because of what he has done. He is good because of what he has brought us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just a couple stories as we close, was a German theologian. I've been reading a lot on him recently as I've been working on my dissertation. And he was a German theologian that uh, was trying to keep the church of Jesus Christ, a, a church committed to the gospel afloat in Nazi Germany during World War II. And during that time, he 
got involved in a plot. You've probably seen the movie Valkyrie or you've heard of it. He got involved in a plot that was going to assassinate Adolf Hitler. It was one of the big struggles of his Christian life, whether or not he should be involved. And the plot got exposed. He got caught along with many others. He was put into prison. And he was martyred at 39 years old in a concentration camp. What's interesting to me is the timing. He was engaged at the time. He died two weeks before the Allies marched into that exact same camp. Three weeks before Hitler committed suicide and the war was over. If he would have made it two more weeks, after years of being in prison, just two more weeks, he would have survived. And this is what he wrote. He wrote many things, but this is one thing he wrote. He said, there is no way to peace along the way to safety. For peace must be dared. It is the great venture. Peace must be dared. When you offer forgiveness, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're taking a risk. It feels like you're daring for something. And that's exactly what God calls us to do. That if we want to extend forgiveness to others, if we want to actually live out this calling that has been placed upon our lives and follow the ways of Jesus Christ, we must dare peace. We must pursue peace. We must pursue forgiveness. We must ask forgiveness. We must extend forgiveness. And we must do this because this is the way of Christ. This is the way that he dared to live. And why can we do it? And why can we do it with a good conscience and a clear heart? Because we know through faith that God does all things for his glory and our good. Only with that type of faith can you extend to people what you need to? As we kind of wrap this up this morning, we're going to close singing a hymn. It's probably the most well-known hymn in the history of hymns. <laughs> it is well. And I don't know where you come in or where you're coming from this morning. I mean, maybe many of you, you came in today and you're like, man, Pastor Steve, couldn't you give us like something really light and fluffy today? Like we have a barbecue this afternoon and I just want to be happy 